Dr. Jody Cairns is a librarian at the University of Akron in Ohio, working at the Cummings Center for the History of Psychology, which is the world's largest repository aimed at preserving the historical record of psychology. Jody manages digital projects, meaning all manuscripts, books, and other items that are being digitized go through her. And sometimes there are some big finds, like a missing spool of folk songs sung in German and Yiddish by people in a World War II refugee camp. And basically, of all these songs, there were two that stood out. But one of them was a song that the prisoners, the Jewish folks, were forced to sing in the forced labor camp by the Germans. And um, what's really interesting about this is that the historian told us that they knew this song existed and they even knew the lyrics, but until our sound recording, nobody who's living knew the, the melody. For Dr. Cairns, the idea of a work-life balance doesn't really exist. She says they've been intertwined since her daughter was born, during her undergraduate degree. I didn't really at all even see that as an impediment to my degree because I lived in Canada and the social system there supported me, helped me pay for childcare and helped me pay my rent. Uh, I was able to just continue my education and graduate on time. And so that has always been my life. My entire adult life has been balancing the personal and the professional. I literally wrote my dissertation balancing my son on my lap with pillows and my hands on a keyboard. Uh, talking about the mathematical theory of communication. On this episode of Run It Like a Girl, find out how mentorship has played a fundamental role in Dr. Kearns's professional and personal life. She's still in regular contact with her own mentor 20 years later. And she's not only a workplace mentor herself, Dr. Kearns has also been working with young girls and teens for years through Girl Guide programs both in Canada and the United States. Dr. Jody Kearns on this episode of Run It Like a Girl. We're very excited today for this episode of Run It Like a Girl, where through video conference, we're speaking with Dr. Jody Cairns from the University of Akron. Jody, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. I thought maybe we could just start by uh, having you tell us a bit about yourself, your career journey, and uh, kind of your path to uh, where you are today. Okay, sure. Uh, so I work right now as a librarian at the University of Akron in what I call the coolest place in Akron, the Cummings Center for the History of Psychology. It is uh, the largest repository of its kind that is uh, preserving the historical record of psychology in the world. At the Center for the History of Psychology, I am a librarian. I manage the digital projects all the manuscripts and books and documents that are being digitized, they come through me. And then we make them available uh, to the public or to researchers. We do find a lot of hidden gems in those materials that came long before we came. Uh, could I tell you a little story about our most recent phenomenal discovery? I would love to hear that, absolutely. So Dr. David Boder was a psychologist who studied what he called displaced persons. So he is responsible. He actually did the very first, that we can tell, the very first interviews, recorded interviews with Holocaust survivors. And these interviews were done in France in, oh gosh, I can't remember the year now, but something like 1946. And all of his recordings were done on a Pierce wire recorder. So it literally, if you were touching it, it like looks and feels and is about the same size as fishing line. 
And it was considered in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, the first, it was not just considered, the first portable recording device that would record sound. Uh, so Dr. Boder took it into the field with him and it was running on battery and he could record on his wire recorder these interviews with Holocaust survivors. Only a few of the interviews survive on wire recordings. We have a few of those. But up until about two years ago, we had no technology to actually listen to what was on those those reels. We just kind of assumed that he had transcribed everything. About two years ago, a mechanical genius at the university built a machine that we could now play these sound recordings on. Historians have been who know this collection have written about these Holocaust uh, recordings, these interviews, and it's it's mentioned that there is like Dr. Boder and the people being interviewed talk about this recording of um, folk songs that were that were sung just that he recorded. But the historians talk about this recording has never been found. It's sort of like the lost spool. Well, as soon as we had this device that um, we could now play the the wire recordings that media and technology specialists who did this work with me basically identified, hey, we found the missing spool. So this missing spool contains, I think it's eight or nine folk songs in German and Yiddish. And they're sung by people in the refugee camp after the war ended. We sent the recording to the Holocaust Museum. Their music historian told us what we had. And basically, of all these songs, there were two that stood out. But one of them was a song that the prisoners, the Jewish folks, were forced to sing in the forced labor camp by the Germans. And um, what's really interesting about this is that the historian told us that they knew this song existed and they even knew the lyrics, but until our sound recording, nobody who's living knew the, the melody. So you're also a mom. I am a mother of three. I like to think I'm raising a, a, a pack full of social warriors, um, social justice warriors. My my oldest daughter was, she marched on Washington on January 21st, 2017. I was so proud of her being part of the Women's March. Uh, she got to hear, you know, Gloria Steinem speak. Who gets to hear Gloria Steinem speak? I was uh, pretty excited for her. My, uh, uh, my other two are teenagers. I don't know. I think about this a lot. I, I feel like, how do you raise kids in a, to understand fairness um, and selflessness in a society that was essentially designed on social inequity? Um, I don't know. This is a really tough one for me to, to think about this. I believe in honesty and your kids obviously are influenced by your own social and political views. Uh, my political views are not secret in my house. Not everybody in my house agrees with my political and social views. I'm sort of, you know, a radical, uh, rabble rouser. Basically it comes down to that my political views haven't really changed at all because of whoever's sitting in the White House. Right, so you must have some pretty uh, interesting conversations around your dinner table. We do, we do. Most recently, my both of my kids, uh, my, my kids who are still in high school, walked out of their school. They, they uh, marched out for the 17 minutes in support of the hashtag enough movement about um, wanting some common sense gun control laws, keeping kids safe in their schools. I mean, that was their choice. They they chose to do it. My uh, daughter was wholeheartedly into that walkout. And our son, who thinks a lot about everything, 
uh, waited until kind of the last minute to make his decision whether or not he would participate. And he did. And he decided that those issues were important to him, too. And that's what I want. I want I want my kids, all of them, uh, to influence me and to be influenced by uh, with a focus of positive change. I sort of really have a lot of trouble with complaining for the sake of complaining and not complaining with action. Um, so let's try to figure out solutions, even if sometimes those solutions seem uh, out of grasp. Right. So raising critical thinkers. You got that right. And honestly, this is where, I mean, I think it's really hard when people ask the question, like, how does home life, how do you balance home life and work life? Because to me, they intersect. I mean, I was that parent who required my kids to write bibliographies in first grade for first grade research projects, even when the teacher didn't require it. Because, you know, why, why not always ask people to be accountable for their their uh, information and teach them to be critical thinkers. I, I like what you said about work-life balance and how, uh, you know, for you, they really are intertwined. Um, and I know that uh, you were uh, you, you were a single mother when you kind of right in the middle of your uh, education journey. Uh, maybe we can spend a few minutes talking about that and how that affected uh, about the progression of your life and your career. Oh, sure. So uh, I had my oldest daughter when I was 21 in the middle of my undergraduate degree. Uh, I didn't really at all even see that as an impediment to my degree because I lived in Canada and the social system there supported me, helped me pay for childcare and helped me pay my rent. Uh, I was able to just continue my education and graduate on time. And so that has always been my life. My entire adult life has been balancing the personal and the professional. I literally wrote my dissertation balancing my son on my lap with pillows and my hands on a keyboard. Uh, talking about the mathematical theory of communication. So, uh, you know, fast forward, and I still, I, I mentioned this earlier to you, but m my first favorite group of people in the whole world are teenagers. So I spend a lot of my time tr at the archives where I work as a librarian who specializes in education, trying to pull teenagers into the programs as much as possible, both undergraduate students, but also high school students. Um, so, you know, in, in talking a lot about kids and everything, so what, what are your views on mentorship? Uh, I have an incredible mentor. Uh, Dr. Brian C. O'Connor is a professor at the University of North Texas, and I was placed with him as his graduate assistant in 1998 when I started my master's program at the University of North Texas. Uh, it has been almost 20 years that we've known each other, and we talk on the phone uh, at least once a week and often more times than that. And I just don't know, uh, somewhere along the line, our academic relationship became personal. So we are now at a place where we've known each other for so long, nearly half my life I've known them. And, you know, we, we end phone calls by saying, I love you, talk to you soon. That's the kind of mentor he became for me that isn't necessarily the type of mentor I would want to be for other people or that I have become for other people. I was uh, recently nominated, actually, at the university for uh, a mentorship award. I haven't heard yet if I've received that award, but it would be a good one. I think that in my experience as a professor who likes to work with undergraduates and graduate students, I think that, and I've talked to a lot of professors about this, I think that you meet students, or from their perspective, you meet professors who's who you understand 
what they say and how they are in their lifestyle and their life's research makes sense to you. And then you sort of like stick to them. You try to take as many of their classes as possible. You try to join the social clubs that they belong to in academics. And the same is true of mentoring students. I mean, I'm a, the coordinator of a really cool undergraduate program at the University of Akron that is a certificate in museums and archives. It's a very small cohort of only 12 students per year are able to get into it, but students spend two semesters basically working in museums and archives and gaining all of these hands-on experience, uh, graduating with this little certificate that will help them get low-level jobs, but still jobs in the museums and archives fields. Uh, a lot of these students we become really close to academically because of the nature of hands-on classes. They're not just like all lecture classes. I think that peer mentorship and like paying attention to, like I, I keep saying over and over again that I love teenagers. I, I'm not sure I would call it mentorship, but I think that if we as adults spend more time listening to the way teenagers and early, you know, undergraduate students, the way that they think and the way that they talk to people um, and the way they view the world, that it sort of helps us, I don't know, transition into being less curmudgeonly about the way that the world is. If you don't have a mentor, I mean, I guess my advice would be to find somebody who is because it really is a life-changing relationship. My experience having an incredible mentor definitely makes me a better, and by better, I mean like maybe a more compassionate advisor, professor, teacher of the students who end up in my office or in my classroom. I guess then, you know, that kind of leads nicely into, uh, you know, ad advice for others. So it kind of like if, if you could spend a day in the past with a, a younger version of you, um, what advice would you give yourself? Embrace failure. That's, that's my advice for my younger me. I spent definitely way too much time worried about being perfect. Failing something is a terrible feeling. But really, I wish I had learned at a younger age that failing something isn't a judgment of my character. I, I think uh, another example is that I, I loved high school and doing school is always something I was good at. Then when I went to university, I was a math major in my first year of university and I didn't dedicate the time I should have to it. I don't think I was incapable, but I was unwilling at the time to put the time and effort into it. Time and effort that I never really had to do before, like putting a ton of effort into schoolwork was new to me. And when I got to my math classes, I really, really felt like I was the dumbest person in the class. And that was not the case in high school. So like nobody really prepared me or I never prepared myself or I wasn't prepared to understand what it felt like to not be the best. So just because you get a, a D on your chemistry paper, doesn't mean that you should stop studying chemistry. If you love chemistry, go for it. Um, don't let it deter you. Don't, uh, your grade isn't a competition with other people's grades. It's, it's just a measurement of where you are on the subject. It's not a measurement of your character. Do you like to, do you like this feeling of getting a bad grade? No? Okay, then try to prevent it next time. It's, it's, it's something that I think a lot about is I wish that I had learned to fail gracefully when I was younger. So, so Jody, I know when we, we chatted earlier, you mentioned that, uh, that you've been involved with the Girl Guides uh, for, for many years. Uh, tell me a little bit about that and what that has meant, meant to you. Well, I would like to just start that by saying when I was in grade six, I wrote an essay that the, 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 the prompt was, how, how old are you going to be when you die and why? 
So I said, I'm going to live to be 106 so I can be the first person to be a girl guide for 100 years. So that's sort of the the platform for how my life has been so, uh, you know, intersected with girl guides and girl scouts. Uh, I went through the whole system in Canada and I was a leader in Canada before my own daughter was old enough to be a girl guide. And then when we moved to the United States, uh, I have been a, a Girl Scout leader since my oldest daughter was old enough to be a Girl Scout. Today, I mean, the, the system in Canada works a little bit differently. In my experience up in Canada, you become the leader of a troop and then girls come into your troop for a couple years and then move on to the next troop and then you get new girls that come in. But in the United States, you get a troop in kindergarten and as long as everybody wants to still be a troop, you remain that troop's leader through high school. I really, really, really love this model because these girls, just a space where girls can be with just girls is a space where they, you know, they're a sorority. They grow the, the sisterhood. They're almost family. They're, they're different than just friends. These girls are incredible human beings and I love them dearly. And it's just an incredible space where girls... And women are empowering each other to be kind, to be brave, to uh, reach for the stars, to um, understand your goals, to have goals, to support your friends' goals. And we do a lot of things and every troop is different. We don't meet so much now that everybody's in high school, but just last week I saw two or three of the girls in my troop and I almost cried. I hadn't seen them in so long and they hugged me and high-fived me. And it's just like this amazing little family of just um, like-minded girls and women who support each other. And that's uh, that's awesome because I imagine, you know, like they have uh, outside of Girl Guides or Girl Scouts, they would have different things going on, different classrooms, different schools. But it's, this yeah. is a place where everyone could come together and probably celebrate differences as much as similarities. My troop did their silver award when they were in the eighth grade, and it was incredible. I mean, we sat around as a troop and thought, what are we going to do for our silver award? Basically, what are the problems out there that you see and that you want to fix? And a girl in my troop raised her hand and said, I don't know if we can do anything about this, but I was called a terrorist on the high school or on the school bus going home from school by a classmate. Uh, we all sort of stopped talking and stared at her. And I said, I'm sorry that happened to you. And she told us a story. I mean, uh, we, we all know her. her. Her mother was born in Syria. And though she was born in this country, um, because there was a lot going on in Syria politically now, but still at the time that somebody got on the school bus and called this little girl a terrorist. And she said, what are we like? <laughs> so I basically said, everybody's all stunned sitting in the room. And I said, okay, what are we get? So what are we going to do about it? And, uh, we put our heads together as a troop and I asked some parents and we got a psychologist from the university of Akron to come down and talk about basically being a social justice warrior, standing up for social justice, being a social justice advocate. And the, my troop put on this incredible program, uh, about, about a five to 10 minute program where they went into the fifth grade classrooms in the school and taught them about how to um, speak up and support people who are being bullied or when you observe an injustice. And they left these fifth graders with these tools to be able to speak up when they hear their friend being called a terrorist on the school bus, or they hear somebody being called fat in the schoolyard, or they hear somebody say, girls can't play basketball, or whatever it is. And 
that's this incredible group of, of girls at the time and, you know, now teenagers. And I adore them and I learn as much from them. I'm sure I learn more from them than they do from me. But we give them the space to really think about things that are important to them and to each other and to have compassion for what other people are passionate about. That's an amazing story and a perfect place for us to end. So thank you so much, Jody, for being here today. It's been such a great conversation with you. And uh, I'm just so happy that you were uh, willing to come on and, and take some time with us. Okay, sure. Thanks, Bonnie. Run It Like a Girl is hosted by Bonnie Moak. Brian Long is the producer. Web design and technical assistance provided by Dan Moak. And music courtesy of the talented Brooklyn Gillichuk. On the next episode of Run It Like a Girl, after being convinced her whole life that she was going to be a lawyer, it wasn't to be. But when Marlo Taylor met public relations, it was love at first sight. She's since worked her way through several firms in Toronto and now runs her own business. The owner of Gage Communications, Marlo Taylor, on the next episode of Run It Like a Girl.